brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Soft Rep Radio, on time, on target. Uh, last episode, we had the uh, revisiting the 9-11 memorial, which I did with Brandon Webb. So thought, I thought it was a really powerful episode, but we're actually recording this as well on September 11th. Sean Parnell is in studio. I definitely want to talk about Man of War, the second book that you've written, but the first novel, you know, the first yes. book was about some guys that you served. But I think before we even get into that, just the fact that we're in New York City on the 17th anniversary of 9-11, like, I think it'd be interesting just to hear about, like, where you were and, and for you guys, really yep. changed the course of your life, so. Yeah, you, you want me to start? Yeah, please. Yeah, so I was a sophomore in college, you know, I think I was a, I think back in the day I was a elementary education major. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I mean, the only thing I was really focused on was like trying to figure out what beer I was going to get my hands on that <laughs> night, you know, because I was like still under 21. And then I remember waking up, you know, on a beautiful September morning, you know, laying flat on my back in this rundown a college apartment with these beer cans all around me. And I sat up and like the sat up and the world is spinning, had the hangover of a lifetime. And I remember staggering over to the television set, turning it on, watching it flicker to life just in time to see an airplane crash into the World Trade Center. Holy shit. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. I And, and I, I feel like there are moments in your life where you, you have just this unbelievable clarity, you know, and, and in that moment for me in the wake of the most horrific terrorist attack in our nation's history, it was like I knew exactly what I was supposed to do with my life, you know, and it was to serve something greater than myself join the infantry, go to airborne school, go to ranger school. I really did want to be, you know, in a conventional light infantry on the front lines, taking the fight to the enemy. And, you know, I got my, I became a brand new second lieutenant in, uh, in May of 2004. I was at the 10th mountain division, you know, in 2005 after my training. And a year and a half later, we were in Afghanistan for 485 days of combat. And it was, I mean, this was, this was at a time back in 2005, 2006, when Afghanistan was just a stability and support operation. We were not getting in my unit, any intelligence from the front, none. I mean, the eyes of this, this, of the nation were wholeheartedly focused on what was going on in Iraq. Should we, or should we not be there? Should we send, (laughs) should, should the surge happen or not? Um, and we weren't getting anything from the front. And so we went and, and I feel like when we got to Afghanistan, man, we had no idea we were getting ourselves into, we were well-trained and we were ready, but I mean, we weren't fighting, uh, you know, farmers with pitchforks. We were fighting, you know, hardened Islamic extremists, uh, you know, Haqqani network, Hekmati or Taliban, Al Qaeda, whatever. Is uh, this the period of time that when the insurgency was really starting to ramp up in Afghanistan? Because I was there yes. the, the summer of oh four, oh five, and honestly, it was fairly quiet. Yep. Same. You know, most of my NCOs in my platoon, uh, you know, and my platoon sergeant, uh, 
they were there in 04 and 05 with the 10th Mountain Division, and I think that they were in JBAD and Gosney, and they mm-hmm. said that nothing was going on. Most of the time they were just bored, you know? And when we ripped out with uh, the 173rd Airborne, those were the guys that were in our in our base before us. We came in, and they were like, you could see the look on their eyes. And these guys, the 173rd, you know, for people that are listening, they're legit infantry. They're 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 amazing. They're I mean, they're airborne light they're infantry. They're airborne light down. infantry. They're incredible. And they were just like, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into here. <laughs> where, and that's like not what you want to hear when you first <laughs> yeah, land, yeah. you know. And we were like, uh, okay. And I remember Ryan Kennedy, who was just a one heck of an officer. It was our company commander, or was or was a senior, or I think he was a senior lieutenant in the company, but had been a platoon leader uh, in Bermel District, which is where I was in Afghanistan, which is about 45 minutes north of Shkin. And our area was just to patrol that border area and close with and destroy the enemy. That was our only mission back then. I mean, and he was showing me some of the videos and uh, of the firefights that they were in. And it was just like, no joke, a conventional infantryman's dream. So naturally, like early on, I was like really excited to see what combat would be like, you know, as an infantryman, that's what you sign up for. You get to go do your job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, oh, man, did we... Did we get our? We get a chance to find out. I mean, the guys that fought us in that border air in that border region, every single firefight that we were in, we were outnumbered at least two to one. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, and these guys were good. I think our first ambush that we were caught in was an L-shaped ambush. We were coming around a mountaintop. The enemy waited for us to dip down into this wadi system in this hill, knowing that our comms were line of sight. You know, they're very <laughs> Afghani they're are very, so very good, good at this. They, <laughs> they're they're amazing. And they they hit us simultaneously. They they volley fired RPGs from either side of our convoy, hit my front truck, hit my lead truck, stopped them both in their place, effectively trapped us in this like, you know, looked like what a, a gravy pour on Thanksgiving. We're trapped in the bottom of this bowl, just getting pounded on all sides with three three PKM machine guns hitting us from each side. And I'm just thinking, oh, my God, I got a year and a half of this. <laughs> and so all of that, all of that because, you know, September 11th, right? And yeah. I wanted to take the fight to the enemy. And so um, 485 days of combat was just was rough. It's hard. And ended up being medically retired thereafter. And a lot of that is detailed in your first book, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Outlaw Platoon, that's what it is. I mean, it's just a story of my soldiers. You know, like with Outlaw Platoon... <laughs> You know, as I mentioned earlier, the eyes of this nation were focused on Iraq. It was funny, like my guys, you know how you go home on R&R throughout a deployment and what they do in the in the conventional infantry is they look at the term of your deployment and say, okay, like first squad pick days from, you know, say May 4th to July 2nd. And for, you know, everybody would rotate on on leave that way. Guys would go home on leave and Americans would be like, oh, thank you for your service. You know, where were you? Where are you deployed? And they'd be like, Afghanistan. And Americans would be like, oh, gosh, you know, thank God you're not in Iraq because it's just like so dangerous over there. My guys would come back and be like, oh, my God, nobody even knows. I just got shot in the head last week. Nobody even knows what the heck is going on over there. And so I just thought to myself, I got to write this book, man. I got to make sure that their legacy is, you know, written down on the page and Americans can pick this book up 100 years from now and, and learn about what my guys went through over there. And that was that was the catalyst and the reason behind writing that story kind of the boots on the ground infantry experience yes. uh that you know they tried to capture in uh, like oliver stone tried to capture in platoon or yes uh, yeah for real i mean that's 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 what outlaw platoon there's no politics in outlaw platoon it's just a warts and all story you know and and you know for me you know i was a young lieutenant man and and i didn't really know anything uh, i was so lucky to have 
you know, non-commissioned officers that taught, coached, and mentored me every step of the way, they had every reason in the world to ostracize me in some office someplace <laughs> and just, hey, sir, do paperwork, shut up, don't get anybody hurt, don't just actually just keep your mouth closed. But they didn't, man. They didn't. I mean, these were guys that had two or three combat deployments already under their belts. I mean, their boots had more experience in the military than I did, but they just were the best. You know, my soldiers included, not just my NCOs. They just made sure that that I knew what what it meant to be a servant leader. And, you know, I, I was really, really lucky to be around them. And I thought, you know, when you when I was medically retired out of the military, I thought to myself, you know, that the charge of command or leadership is not something that you should relinquish, even though you hang up your uniform. It's something that's lifelong. To, you know, it's a leader's job to keep that sense of collective identity of a unit intact so that when they come home, they still feel like they're part of a team. You know, so many so many of the issues that our veterans face in this country today are because they, you know, they feel isolated when they come home. And if you think about it, like guys trained to go to war together, shoot, move, and communicate together as a team, then you go to war and you fight, bleed, and you die together. And then you come home and everybody goes their separate ways. They either get out of yeah. the military or they go to a different duty assignment, PCS or whatever. It just runs contrary to every to the way that we were trained. So part of my job, I think, as a leader is to keep that sense of collective identity intact and by putting their story on the page. And that was what Outlaw Platoon was. Yeah, I get this, that sense from uh, my ODA uh, team leader as well. He, he tries to, like, hold things together a little bit for people. He's a good guy. Uh, but last year, went to a memorial for one of the guys on our team who killed himself. And uh, while I was there, I met this other um, Green Beret who had been my friend's uh, best man at his wedding and then had been his pallbearer when he died. Oh, my God. And man. this guy, he, he was uh, a young, young guy. And I found out that he died unexpectedly a week ago. And oh man, uh, I am so sorry to hear that. It's just, uh, it, it's the, you know, like you said, warts and all. I I love the military, and I and I uh, I have a lot of fond memories about it. But it's like these sorts of things are the one time that I look at it, and I, I kind of wonder, like, did I do the right thing joining the military? Because you, these guys are dying so young. Well, exactly, and and. It's if you look at it for like just even from like an existential standpoint, when you go into the military and you start and you you start your training, you know, even just as a conventional infantry guy, you learn to to move as a collective team. You become each other. And so when these guys come home and the journey from home a journey journey back home from war begins, and it's something that has transcended culture and time. Since there's been war, men have come home from it. And so it's something that's not unique to American culture. It's something that's far deeper than that. And, you know, it's you know, when guys come home and they lose their life and it's not in a smoking hot pile of brass. And I, I, I mean, seriously, yeah. as an infantryman, if I got to go down like that, like, so be I'm it. ready. So yeah. be it. It's part <laughs> of the job. Right. And but when you come home and, and guys take their life and they lose that fight here at home, it just it just you lose a part of yourself. Yeah. And, it, and I and so outlaw platoon of my guys, like they had two deployments lost six people total from the platoon on each of those deployments but we've lost more people in that platoon to suicide now than we ever did in two deployments of heavy combat i mean is that not staggering it's crazy and it i mean that's kind of been what my observation also um and it i, I don't know it runs contrary we have this sort of self-image of ourselves that we're like these big tough guys we're america's alpha males and there's some, <laughs> right. there's some truth to that but then if you look at like the 22 veterans a day statistic like th these two narratives don't make sense because if it's we're true. if we're really that tough we wouldn't have this problem right 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 and well you think think about 
I, I've got a lot of theories uh, and thoughts behind this. Uh, but if you think about like the way that American warriors look at themselves, regardless of what branch they served, uh, they almost look at themselves like, you know, like the samurai looked uh, how, how samurai looked at themselves. Like they yeah, don't yeah. they don't see suicide as something that is inherently dishonorable. Like, you, you know, you see guys on on Twitter or Facebook all the time saying, see you in Valhalla. They believe that, yeah, like, yeah. when they die, they're going to dine in Valhalla with their brothers that they miss. So, I, you know, I think that's part of the reason why, you know, veteran suicide is so high. I think the I think a, a more important reason is that people in this country, you know, only 0.4% of this nation served during the longest period of war in our nation's history. And the people that enjoy freedom on a day-to-day basis are very, very far away from those who have carried a very heavy burden for a long time and those yeah. who protect freedom. Mm-hmm. And so guys come home and they feel isolated and they feel like their country doesn't really, really understand what they went through and they end up feeling like exiles in their own country. Yeah, yeah, because there's such a disconnect between the two. Yes. You know, even uh, a friend of mine, um, after we served together, he went and he, he worked down in Tampa at um, the Special Operations Command uh, Central and he was like, you know, Jack, the reason why this war's gone on so long is because the officers who run it, they're not in the field. Oh my God. They're down in so Tampa. True. They come into work, they do PT, they run the war from nine to five, and then they get in their BMW and drive home. Oh my God. You know what? Like what you just said, I never even thought of it, but you're exactly yeah. right. You know, a lot of the field grade officers and above, or maybe even strategic level officers, are, are guys that grew up in the nineties, right. And sir, their, their formidable yeah. platoon leader time or NCO time was in the nineties when we were in large part, you know, outside Panama or whatever. I mean, like and a peacetime a, force. It's a far cry from like Patton who was like outrunning yes. his logistics lines, getting <laughs> way ahead of the front. And then the rest of the army would have to catch up with him. It's so true. Today's leaders, military leaders, they're, they're here. They're in the United States. They're chilling down in Tampa. I know. <laughs> I know. God, it's so true. You know, uh, the, the general, officership in in the army is is really changed the culture has changed from the patents of the world during world war ii leading the charge to you know sitting in or even eisenhower wasn't necessarily on the front he was still over there no it's so true and you know these guys like i always liken the guys that are running the war um you know i always liken it to being like an, an artist you train your whole life to be a painter and you never had the opportunity to paint. Like, for example, like you're an infantryman, you train your whole life to be an infantryman. Now these guys are generals and they've never been in the fight themselves, but they're the ones running the show. And so, you know, not only do you find a disconnect in civilian society between veterans and civilians, but you find it in the military too, between the general officer leadership and the boots on the ground leaders that have been kicking indoors for 17 years. Um, You know, the philosophy uh, from boots on the ground guys that have that have been there yeah. done that is is right. It's oftentimes very different than what it's totally different. Right? Am I right about and, that? And it's even you know I, I've discussed it on the podcast a little bit in the past. The difference between say the infantrymen and um, some of the people, men and women, patriotic Americans. I want to point out, but they serve in more like logistics and um, sort of the background role that keeps the the gears of the military greased. Right. And they had um, worked in almost a corporate environment. For sure. Like the mentality between, you know, the guys who are out on patrol in Afghanistan and these people who serve behind a desk, even though their jobs are, are really just as important to keep the military functioning, like the mentality is just so different. It, it's like you, two different worlds. I mean, you're you totally right. Let me, let me give you an example of, of what I think you're talking about. So, 
young platoon leader in Afghanistan. Uh, we came back from a firefight. One of my squad leaders had taken a bullet to the ankle. He was bleeding everywhere. And I was trying to help him get a tourniquet above his ankle. And I got some of his blood on my kit, right? And I go back to the base. And it was like, hey, the red ring route's coming in, man. Like, you're going on leave tomorrow, so pack your stuff and go. And I'm just like, I got 10 minutes to pack my stuff. My uniform's filthy and disgusting. And I'm flying back to Bagram, right? <laughs> I got still got blood on, on, my, on my kit from one of my squad leaders. I get off the bird. I walk 100 yards, right? And I run into this major who had been at Bagram the entire time. And he's like, your uniform is a disgrace. You need to, you need to go change. I'm like, dude, really? Like, <laughs> like, and I, so I walked around Bagram for a day before I went home on leave. And I'm like, everybody that's stationed here should be paying the army. You're a to, disgrace. Yeah. <laughs> well, You're yeah. a disgrace well, for being in combat <laughs> leading troops. Well, I mean, it's just like the dis it's that this that disconnect like yeah. he, his mind is not even in the same headspace as mine like <laughs> no. people you know where people are hey what time does green bean coffee open man because i want to beat the rush <laughs> it's also it's like yeah i was pooping in a can for a year <laughs> there's a big difference right i'm serious man like yeah. and like it, you know bagram is like a corporate environment i said you know people that are stationed there you know god bless them man they're serving their country they're away from their family and i really don't mean to take anything away from what from their service i don't but it it's a different it's a different thing they should be paying the army to to go there it's like there you walk around you go to these world class gyms right seriously they're really amazing gyms and there are water coolers everywhere with bottled water i'm thinking like yeah. this is like club med Yep. You know, I, um, in, in Bagram at that time, there was a Burger King. There yes. was, yeah, there's the, I think there was a Cinnabon by the that Cinnabon. point. <laughs> yeah. uh, there was the Thai massage parlor. Yeah. There was, uh, what else was there? Yeah, they had salsa night and all that stuff. <laughs> they, had hair, they had hairstylists. In fact, one of my, yes, yes. my RTO, when we, came, when we came back from deployment, he's like, I'm treating myself right. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I'm getting waxed. I'm like, you're getting waxed? He's like, yeah, I'm all my body here. I'm like, what? <laughs> Why? Why? Um, he's like, I'm getting a Brazilian. I'm like, no. Why? Why would you? But so he had the capability to get a Brazilian wax as a man coming back from combat in Bagram. I don't think I could walk down the streets of New York on this block and find somebody to give me a Brazilian. Not that I would want eh, one, but I'm just surprised saying, around here, I feel like. That's but, this, wrong, but this is New York City, man. You know, like you don't you had like an entire staff of Russian stylists and manicurists and pedicures in Bagram. Yeah. And, and they were filled every single day. Uh, uh, yeah. It's bizarre. I, I was only in Bagram for about maybe five days total going from point A to point B like you. Um, but there's the, uh, they had like the super jock there for all like the task force guys. And right. The, the, the camp that all the Rangers and everyone lived in, I, I'm not joking. It looked like Auschwitz. <laughs> it was wired up. I know. You're exactly right. It, it's a, fenced in a with lot triple strand concertina wire. A lot of guys came home from that bullshit bagroom deployment on antidepressants because mm. their lives were so miserable there. I, I don't doubt it at all. Yeah. I mean, you know, th you're you're exactly right. It does feel like... It does feel like that. Like you walk past the special operations complex in Bagram. I mean, it's got this these chain link fences covered by like with this green guard stuff, huts, guard huts corners. everywhere, triple strand contratina wire, and uh, you know, yeah, I, I get it. it. It's it's um and the, the chain of command, all those officers up there, oh like God. the guy that was chewing your ass, getting yeah. off the helicopter. That's all you have up there, and yeah. they're just like on these guys' balls the entire time. <laughs> well, it's like, yeah, for not having their PT belt on when they walk down Disney Drive. Disney yeah. Drive is the main drag down right the down the center of Bagram. But, yeah, you don't wear your PT belt there 
you get yelled at because they know they're on a bullshit non-combat deployment, but they need to get their OER bullets. Yeah. So they're doing all kinds of stupid stuff, just making everyone's life miserable. It's true. It's true. You know, I had a, I had a, uh, an NCO tell me very early on as a young leader, like, don't be one of those officers that is, is concerned with, on, with only with the bow and never with their wake. Right. Yeah. So like always focus on the here and now don't really worry about what hire tells you. I mean, always accomplish their intent, but your job is to accomplish the mission and take care of your soldiers. I mean, your job as a leader, as a platoon leader, a young platoon leader especially, is to be a bullshit filter. Make sure that your men have the space and time to train on what matters so that when they go outside the wire, they can focus on the mission. Like so much of our time in Afghanistan, I mean, as a a leader, my platoon sergeant and I would would just go down the list and be like, don't need to bother the guys with this. Don't need to bother the guys with this either. And so, yeah, you get your ass chewed for that by your company commander if something doesn't yeah. get done, but it's worth it because your soldiers are able to focus on what they're supposed to focus on. Uh, as, uh, as as much as I uh, BS as I thought I had to deal with as a you know a sergeant or a staff sergeant, uh, I realize in retrospect I was kind, I'm quite infantile in some ways, and that <laughs> I had officers who were protecting me from the vast majority of the bullshit. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. <laughs> I, I hated, you know, I loved being a platoon leader. I think it's the best job in the army. It really is for a, for an officer because you're, you have direct contact with your troops every single day. But my least favorite part of being a platoon leader was like these battlefield update briefs, you know, and, the and con op. yeah, the con. Yeah. And so like you go in and like all my NCOs would be like laughing at me because they'd be out there like smoking cigarettes or cigars. And you just you doing- haven't slept in three days. <laughs> yeah. because of, We'd know. get back off of a mission and I'd have to go be the, the battle captain in the talk for a 12 hour shift at night. I'd be like to my commander. I'm like, sir, like any one of these other officers here that don't do 24 hour operations, could they maybe take the midnight <laughs> shift in the talk? This made sense, right? Of course not. No, of course. We want to put the guys that are out there fighting and getting shot at every day in the talk overnight. So it's like, yeah, it's like, it's a lot of that garbage that, that sort of makes you pull your hair out like when you serve. And that's the stuff that you don't miss. But I, I think generally speaking, if I had to look at the entirety of my service, I, I do miss it. I, I think I would go back in a second, you know? There are definitely aspects of it that I, that I miss. Um, but... I mean, I think for both of us, we probably came in at quite the right time. I think so, too. Uh, I mean, and honestly, I'll be quite honest, I think I got out at the right time, too. Yeah. 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 I mean, it wasn't my call to get out, although I think I was on my way. After I came back, I mean, I had aspirations to be like a career army guy when I went in. And after I experienced a year, like 485 days of combat, I'm like, okay, I've had my fill. I'm done. You know? Well, it's also going to be pretty hard for you to come down off of that and, you know, do the staff positions. And exactly. Even though you check the block, you got your CIB, but I think it would be difficult. I I think it would, at least for me, I think it would be difficult to transition over to that. Absolutely. When I got back, they made me an XO and then I was a company commander for a while prior to even having gone to the command course. And it was just not the same. Yeah. And honestly, like if you wanted to have a wife and kids and a family, like the 10th Mountain Division at that time was going back in nine (laughs) months. Like, so we get this, we get back from a year and a half. So, okay. So people need to know we were extended a day before we were supposed to go home. I, me and my platoon sergeant were the last people from my platoon left on the base. We were for doing the rip with the, with the 82nd Airborne coming in to replace us. I had guys in Bagram. I had guys that were already home. And, and we get a call. SecDef had gotten a call from uh, – SecDef had called our commander, General Frakely at the time, 
and we got extended like within 24 hours. We get, we get called to the talk like at two o'clock in the morning, and that's never a good call. And we're like, oh god, some somebody's getting attacked somewhere. We're gonna have to roll outside the wire and 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 respond. But no, it was like two eight seven infantry has been extended for you know hundred for 120 days or until mission complete. You know, those are the last when you're in the, when you're in the infantry and you're surrounded by the Joe mafia who are also like barracks attorneys, yeah, they yeah. focus in on those words or until mission complete. And, and it was a day before we were supposed to come home. And so we had MPs that were going to my soldiers houses and taking them out of their homes and walking them back to the RDF, the rapid deployment facility Holy and putting them back shit. on the birds and flying them back to Afghanistan. And then we were there for another four months, a whole nother spring offensive. So it was, it was <laughs> miserable. That was my deployment. Wow. And again, this is like one of those moments where I don't really know where I was going with that, but well, you it's would also, ask me something. But I, I, I'll tell you what that moment is. That's the moment where you're like, thank God I'm not married and I don't have kids because imagine them going through all that. Yeah. So the army had spent tens of thousands of dollars um, sending psychologists and all this other stuff. The families had already booked vacations and made down payments on apartments and houses and bought houses and like you know, started school and all this other stuff. And man, it was, it was a shit storm. It really was. I'd never seen men so dejected as they were getting off that bird back in Burmel. And in no joke, they had us going, they had us outside the wire that same day. That's crazy. Yeah. That's just like, you know, you, it was the whole mentality of like, you know, you fall off a bike, you know, get back on the bike and keep riding as soon as possible, except for people are trying to kill you and shooting at you. So it's a little bit different. You know, it was guys, it was, it was a leadership challenge to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was <laughs> to really put it bad. Mildly, yeah, to yeah. put it mildly, guys were really dejected. Pretty demoralized after that. Yeah, you know, because the army of today is really different than, you know, say the Spartans. You know, back then, you were responsible for being, you were responsible for how capable you were as a warrior. You had your own sword, you had your own shield, and it was your job to maintain it, and it was your job to bring your own food, it was your job to do all that stuff. It's not so in the military, in the army of today. They provide you your armor. They provide you your weapon. They provide you your training. They provide you your money. They give you a place to live. I mean, it's like they give you your water. They're almost like a parent figure to you. So when we were extended the day prior to going home, somebody, you know, we thought to ourselves, somebody up in the higher echelons of command had to have known a long time ago, even a week would have made a big difference. You know, we, we, were, we were extended a day before I was supposed and to go they home waited for up until the and they waited to the last moment to do it. So it was almost like when they did that, the army had had betrayed us, you know, like it was like being betrayed by a parent. And, and that, I think, was more traumatic for my soldiers than any combat that we were in. Yeah, because now you have to ask yourself the question, like, who is making these decisions? Exactly. And why are they making them? Yeah, so what, what had happened was is we, we had built combat outpost Margot. That was the very, very first combat outpost that was built in Afghanistan during the shift in strategy, right, to where, you know, we built all these combat outposts and we were going to have a presence in every village just like we did in Iraq and we were going to win the hearts and minds – it's a strategy that in Afghanistan just doesn't work. So we built this combat outpost, and I was up there manning it. And, you know, I remember the engineers had left in the middle of the night because we were the area that we were in was so dangerous. They just up and left. So we had these half-filled HESCO walls around a combat outpost that we just couldn't fill because the engineers were like, oh, sorry, this wasn't, in the, this wasn't in the job description. This place is too dangerous. We're out. And they left us in the middle of the night. That's crazy. I'm not joking, man. This was the, this was a wild, wild west time in the army. These are also American soldiers. Yeah, you should point out. Yes, and so there we were, sitting with five gun trucks and my in my truck in the middle, and I had to I had to drive up my gun trucks on these ramps 
that the engineers were using to fill these HESCO walls and put gun trucks up on the ramp so I could have four points of security. And that night, we, I get a call at like three in the morning from my boss, you know, from my company commander. We had Predator in the sky who he had seen. He said, hey, you know, I don't want to alarm you. But from your east, you have 250 enemy fighters moving under your position. And from, from your north, you've got another 55. And I'm like, what? And so my platoon sergeant comes over to me. He's like, batting down the hatches. And we got ready for this fight. But thank God we had Predator in the air. But our battalion commander ended up, well, he was, he was amazing. He's like a modern-day Patton, really. He was, he was so great. I stacked up all this air from, from we had Predator in the sky, and then we had Apaches, and then, you know, we had, you know, uh, warthogs and then we had b1 strategic lancers in the air and like so we he did a great job deconflicting all that air and i mean we started with dropping three or four uh two thousand pound jdams on them and la- yeah. it's funny it's funny because we can listen to their combo and they know that that's why they have their own comsec and stuff you know um they're like the last thing they said uh before we dropped that those munitions they were like they're like overrun the platoon Make sure you cut off their heads. And it was just like, we sent, we sent, we dropped the bombs on them right after that. And I, st- I have the Predator feed from that fight. Uh, I have the Predator feed of, the, of just watching these bombs hit and then these, these guys scatter. <laughs> and, and then I think our base called in 250 rounds of 105 artillery that was just, you see like the explosions on the, on the, on the thermals from the Pred. And then we had an A10 coming in and Apaches coming in. It was just like, it was amazing. And by the time we got to that objective the next day, it was just it was it was an infantryman's dream, right? We were just kicking boots. Yeah, everybody yeah. was everybody was dead. You know, that's a pretty uh, actually a pretty good day as far as like the the enemy massing their forces like that. Like, how exactly. often do you have the opportunity to wipe out three hundred of them at once? I know, and people don't believe me until I show them the video. I have the predator yeah. video, and they just show, they were moving in a tactical column. And, and the Pred would just follow this trail, and it looked for, like, uh, two minutes. would just follow these guys, and you can just count them. One, two, three, four, five, six, Holy seven, eight, shit. nine. All the way back to the border, they were marching in to hit us. And so my point of, of, with telling you all that was is that the SecDef came down for that because we found PacMill ID cards, Frontier ID cards on them. So PacMill was supporting that attack, and we gave that all that intel to the SecDef, and the SecDef took it and went back to the Pentagon. And two weeks later, we were extended because they had sent all of the units that were meant to replace us to Iraq, and we were just left there. You know how? Uh, what, what what was the mix at that time? Uh, like Afghan, or uh, from what you're saying, somewhere Pakistani um, versus like foreign fighters from the Gulf states and so forth. Well, so in that particular engagement. You know, it felt like pack mill because by, when we did the sensitive site exploitation, what you call like the SSE on the objective, they were wearing plate carriers, body armors. I mean, they had Merrill combat boots. A lot of the equipment that they had was right. I mean, the PKMs and, and, and AK-47s that they had, they were right off. They, I mean, we weren't allowed to talk about this at the time, but Iranian serial numbers fresh off the assembly lines in Iran. I mean, they were well equipped. Do you think they were freelance doing a mercenary? Uh, That's a really interesting question. I had never thought about it until now. Maybe. Entrepreneurial minded. uh Guy, because in parts of Pakistan, like the Fatah and Baluchistan and places yeah. like that, I mean, they have a real history of working freelance. You're right. Yeah, it's an interesting question I'd never yeah. thought about until now, maybe, because they were really, really well equipped. And so, you know, we, we had a, an interesting cross-section of enemy, though, to answer your question. Like, th- it, that was actually one of our greatest challenges, just trying to figure out who we were fighting that given day. Is this Haqqani? Is this Ahmadi? Or is this just, like, a drug deal gone wrong? Or is this right. Taliban? Right. <laughs> Al-Qaeda? We had no idea. So... Um, I mean, there were times where, I mean, we fought, I mean, obviously, 
you know, jihadists that spoke Pashto and specifically Waziri in that area, which is interesting because we had to have local Terps from that area that could speak Waziri because the Terps that the army were sending us couldn't speak Waziri. Is that, is that what they speak closer to the Iranian border? Um, oh, and, and RC East. Um, so I... It was, it was the Pakistan border, R.C. East, Shkin area from okay. basically Fob Tillman on down, all spoke Waziri. Everywhere else around there spoke uh, Farsi and uh, Pashto, but the Terps that we had had to be from that local area because it was such an obscure dialect. We, we didn't have anybody that could do it. So um, the enemy that we fought there was just, I mean, they were a little, like, a little from column A, a little from column B. We had a real difficult time identifying who they even were half the time, but they, they seemed to all be crammed in there. Um, I mean, they might have all been fighting different factions, fighting for that absolutely. turf at the same time. Yeah, you know? right. Exactly. I mean, it was it, it was it wasn't even like, you know, like you said, like sometimes you just like get in the middle of a drug deal or something. Yeah, you know, some yeah. you know somebody like, you know, and they just shoot at you for whatever reason. It was real hard to identify who the enemy was. I mean, I remember an operation uh, down on the Pakistan border we did one time, and um, you know, we were driving through the mountains and everything, and you could hear firefights down in the valley, just gunfire, mortar fire. I mean, it, mixing it up pretty good. And, uh, you know, we'd ask the Afghan border control people, you know, who is, are, are they coming for us? What is this? What's going on? And they're like, nah, it's just two rival families duking right. it out. You know, <laughs> yeah, it has, nothing, exa- has nothing to do with exactly, you. Exactly, man. And, and like, we, it, is, it was really challenging. I remember, I remember one engagement, we were down in Shkin. Shkin is like, in our regional command east, right on the border. I mean, like it, you, you it's a stone's throw away from the pack mill that are manning the other border checkpoint at the other side. And they had dishkas mounted on all these. I mean, they're all aimed right at what they at this place called the Alamo. And the Alamo is like removed from Firebase Skin, but it was all the way on the border. And we had a mission there once, and we just got we just got attacked. It was like the worst kind of attack too, because it was indirect fire. Like they were hitting us with mortars and rockets, and we really couldn't see where they were coming from. So we really and we also couldn't shoot back because. They were using the pack mill uh, as like basic, basically as like human shields, knowing that if we fired at the pack mill, like it would create an international incident. So all we could do is hunker down and just get slammed with 107 millimeter rockets for (laughs) about an hour and a half. It was, it was, and, and I learned after that engagement that that was the Fourth of July. <laughs> I'm like, gives a whole new, whole new definition <laughs> to fireworks, you know. Uh, but that's that's the enemy that we fought, man. They knew what they were doing, and they they understood the geopolitics of the region, and they knew that if we sh- shot and fired back at Pac Mill, it would create a sh- create a shitstorm. Yeah, Pakistan. I mean, is like the 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 puzzle, the conundrum of that entire conflict that we've been unable, unable to unravel. Um, it was interesting to see that the, they recently cut what $300 million of funding to the Pakistani government. Yeah. You know, I understand the complexity of that aid package for sure, because, uh, but I am a fan of the move because, you know, these are not our friends. No, they're not, you know, they're frenemies. Right. But like, you know, I understanding that part of that aid package goes to, physical security of their nuclear weapons, yes. which is really important. Uh, we, it, you know, I always, it, what always struck me in Pakistan was how everything in that country is just, just perilously balanced on a knife's edge, man. Yeah. Like, I, I, like, I don't understand how the Pakistani Taliban has not overrun, you know, a pac mill nuke facility or, you know, have some pac mill officer that was corrupt, like, Give somebody access. I mean, I, I don't. I, don't, I can't they, believe they it keep hasn't a happened. really, really tight leash on that stuff. And you know, like you said, we have some involvement in that too. There's an interesting article years ago now. I think it was in the New Yorker, and about 
uh, they published this article about Pakistani nuclear security. And one of the things the PACs were doing was driving nuclear weapons around the country in trucks, like unmarked civilian vehicles to try because they were so afraid that like, you know, the JSOC dudes are going to come in the night and take control of their nuclear weapons. And it's sort of like decapitation strike. (laughs) The way I would interpret that, (laughs) the way, the way I would interpret that article though, that it was that it was kind of, it was probably our government, the CIA or whoever, trying to telegraph to the Pakistanis like, hey, you need to stop driving these these bombs around in trucks because it's not safe. I, I know, right? I mean, and so part of part of it's like like part of like the 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 plot in Man of Man of War is you try to ask yourself like what what's the scariest thing that could happen? Mm-hmm. And and having come back from Afghanistan, it was just like a man portable nuclear weapon like being unleashed. It's like fi- trying to find a needle in the stack of needles. Like, how do you track it? How do you find it? You know, uh, I think the Russians had, in, in the research that I did for this book, had something like 60-some backpack portable, 60-pound suitcase nukes that you they're man-portable. They're, they, they've only ever accounted for 57. Like, where are the other three? I, you know? uh, I, I mean, I take it you did some research on green light. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, yeah, but it, it, is, it not, is it not scary? Does it not scare you? Yeah, it, well, ours, see, it's very interesting. I, I did a, a bunch of research on that pro, on our program with man-portable nuclear weapons, and of all the special forces guys I talked to who are on green light, I don't think any of them actually even saw a live nuclear weapon. Now, so they had, interesting. They had simulators, and they had inspections, and there were points of inspection. They had to come in and take the weapon apart, put it back together, arm it, disarm it. It was all on a training simulator. And if you failed inspection, God help you, if you failed an inspection, the team leaders were leaved immediately. No, are you kidding me? Yeah, it, this was a very it was a very elite thing. They called them uh, pig teams, which was uh, Palmer's Imperial Guards after the general who came up with the program or was a, a big part of the program, yeah. so pig teams. And um, the Greenlight guys did interesting stuff. That's where the, um, the Rolex watches that SF guys have, it's because they gave those Rolex uh, watches to green light teams because they were going to have to parachute with these nuclear weapons behind enemy lines, and they might have to use the Rolex as a barter item. Yes, that is out. what I know of the green light teams. Like, all the yeah. stuff about disarming the nuclear weapons and relieving the team, I had no idea. But, I, that, I mean, th- that's why I have, that's why I have uh, Rolex Submariner. Eric Steele in my book wears a Rolex Submariner for that, for that very reason, in case he has to barter. He has to use it to barter. It's, this is a, I have to stress, this is a real rumor but guys who were on the teams they told me so they they would activate there's an actual like keypad on the weapon to arm it and then they would have something like 35 45 minutes to vacate the area before the weapon detonates. <laughs> oh man that's cool i'm sorry but that's pretty cool uh, th- these are baby nukes so yeah tack nukes or something you could, you could get away you could probably get a, escape the blast radius um but the the scuttlebutt internally on the teams was that the second they put the code into the weapon was going to detonate and blow up in their faces, kill the team. Oh, my God. Because, it, because they're, they're, they'd be like, look, it's a suicide mission from the get-go. So the, the, the idea was like, uh, you know, the scuttlebutt was that there, it was to sacrifice the team. So what they did in training with the simulator is they'd have just two guys go up to the final point with the bomb and activate it while the rest of the team was in an Overwatch position. Because, Dude, because they because they, they came to believe in their mind that that weapon was going to go off the second they armed it. That is intense. That is crazy. Yeah. That is crazy, man. I mean, 
that th- that is to me that's a nightmare scenario. I well, just find it just tell us a, more about the book. Then I want to I want you to tell us how you transitioned into writing a novel. Yeah, nonfiction to fiction is is a tough jump and a, and a long gap of time in between. Yeah. You and I were talking before we were recording, and and your first book came out as you were yeah. saying around the time of American Sniper, yes, Lone Survivor. Those are all books we remember from five plus years ago. Yes. And now you write a fiction novel. Yeah, Outlaw Platoon came out in like February of 2012. American Sniper came out in January of 2012. I actually met Chris after our books had published and became friends with him after that. But yeah, um, I think part of the problem is, is that it just takes a long time to learn how to tell a good story. And, you know, I, I say this all the time, but if you're an aspiring fiction writer, it's far more important to be a good storyteller than it is to be a good writer. I mean, you have yeah. to be able to write. I mean, but there are a lot of great people, great writers out there who can write a great op-ed too, but could not pull off writing a fiction story. And that's precisely because they don't know how to tell a story. And so for six years, I just did research and read books and watched films and just try to get a sense of, you know, what's the best way to have a story dramatically unfold and the idea of showing the reader something as opposed to simply telling them. Um, the learning curve was steep. I think I <laughs> wrote and rewrote in, you know, a different Eric Steele story. It took me four years to actually get it done and get that book published because I had to start from scratch three or four times because I just didn't have... You weren't the, feeling it. Yeah, right? You, yeah, exactly. And so Man of War is a... Um, it's, it's a character-driven book. It's, it's, it's obviously plot-driven. I think it's a nice hybrid between a plot-driven and character-driven story. Uh, and what I mean by that is that, you know, I think it's important specifically for thrillers to have your protagonist or hero, or in this case, Eric Steele in Man of War, drive the plot. And I should words. throw out there, Eric Steele is a Green Beret. Former Green Beret, yeah. Or an Army Ranger, former Army Ranger it, and infantry officer. Yeah, in, so. infantry officer, Ranger qualified guy. Like, I was never in a Ranger battalion like like Jack, right? You were in a Got Ranger battalion. Yeah. yeah. So there's a, there's, a, there's a difference that many people don't understand, but... I, I, did th- get, I, I think my mom is still confused about the difference don't between get ranger it, yeah. school and ranger battalion. They, they don't get it because <laughs> it is so confusing not to, di- not yeah, to divert is. from the conversation, but there are guys in ranger battalions that don't have a ranger tab. But guys yeah. in ranger battalions yeah. are rangers, and then there are guys in conventional infantry units that have ranger tabs. We kind of screwed up on the, like, the PR side of explaining that to the public. Yeah, yeah, and people don't get it, and that's fine. It's neither here nor there. But, but um, yeah, you know, I tried to... I tried to write this book and make it as authentic, bring the lessons that I learned from combat and make the engagements as authentic as humanly possible. Um, but it, it was a steep learning curve, you know, and I thought, I thought the most important part is, is having characters that are rich and believable with depth that have both internal and external conflicts and their own specific and personal psychology. Like that's the checklist for characters. And they, they have to, you know, they have to have depth. People have to feel like they're real. Like Eric Steele and 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 Demo, his keeper, and Meg and 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 Rockford, who is the president. Uh, they feel like real people to me. You know, after having worked and developing their characters for four years and their own idiosyncrasies and stuff, it's it's a monumental challenge to do it and do it right. Now there are people out there that that can just write a fiction book because they have it right. They they just get it. You know, I'm not one of those people. Um, but you know, Man of War, like. I thought to myself when writing this book, like there were several times where there were missions where like we knew where a high value target was like, he's like right over in that compound. He sets up a lemonade stand every Tuesday. We know he gets it, goes to the market and shaves on Thursday. Can we just go get him? No. 
well, why can't we have to wait for so-and-so's approval at the Pentagon? Well, that would come a week later and the guy's already gone. Yeah. It's like we're shooting ourselves in the foot with this war. So I just thought to myself, like, you know, I need to develop my own clandestine unit. You know, I, I, so much, so much of these books that have a guy working for the CIA or a part of some DOD organization or some black ops unit, like I created my own unit. It's called the alpha program. And there are nine alphas, each responsible for a different geographic area of the globe, all of whom report directly to the president. So in order to give the president operational flexibility. So if the president can't handle a mission with diplomacy or boots on the ground, special operations or war, all out war. He sends in an alpha to handle the situation, and they're just expected to handle it, whether it's a targeted assassination mission or something that's more diplomatic. Um, so Eric Steele is a former Green Beret, as you mentioned. He cut his teeth in Afghanistan, was put in for the Medal of Honor, uh, but then just got what's called like a, you know, a notification from the alpha program to come and try out. And the trial, they call it Indoc, but it's at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, uh, at a place called the Salt Pit. I mean, I just created all this <laughs> from scratch, but uh, there's four phases to Indoc, and he, tr- he goes through the four phases of the Alpha training program and becomes the youngest and most talented Alpha in the history of the Alpha program. And, and the Alpha program itself was, in, in the books anyway, was developed in the wake of World War II, uh, refined uh, during the Cold War uh, and the rise of, of Stalin in post-World War II era to combat the Russians in Europe and was steadily developed and refined and now, you know, at its peak in, in the global war on terror. So the book find, the book starts in, in, a way, in a method of storytelling called In Media Res. So In the middle of it. Yeah, right. And so Eric Steele was thrown into a club in Beirut called The Dragon's Door. It's a real <laughs> club, and he's like, he knows something's wrong. He gets a CIA target package. It just feels too convenient to him, and he's just thrown into it and expected to figure it out. And so, so with Man of War, like, just, you know, I, I love mentor-turned-enemy type stories, you know? And, and so... um the story centers around him. I don't want to, I don't want to give it away, but you know, his former alpha trainer mentor, uh, who was thought dead. Yeah. who was thought dead. He was, you know, he was, you know, sort of has a Benghazi type feel to the story. Like there's a guy that was, you know, assassinated. They didn't set, they didn't send in any help for him. They knew the attack was coming and they sort of like let him die, but he doesn't die. Brody. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So he doesn't die. And so, but Eric doesn't know this. I mean, the reader knows this. You'll, you'll read about Nathaniel West on chapter two, but Eric doesn't know this. And so, so there's some, you know, I I feel like that gives a little bit of tension. Anytime there's a mentor turned enemy, sort of in a story it feels a lot more personal. Yeah. Yeah, one, One of our own going to the other side is just something that scares people. Um, and you know, it's, it's not even like for Nathaniel West, like the other side, meaning like he's in it for himself, right? Like mm-hmm. Nathaniel West goal, like he doesn't give a crap about Islamic extremists. In fact, he hates them just as much as, as, you know, as much as we do. Uh, but like, you know, he's in it for himself because he knows he was betrayed by high level people in the U S government and he's going after those people. And it's up to Eric to stop him. As far as like what you described with the alpha program, it's kind of uh, that you, you know, created for this book. It's interesting because, a lot of people, like, we talk about, like, oh, there's, like, tier two, tier one, all this yeah. kind of stuff. But there's, like, people don't understand there's, like, these little levels that are sort of above that. Yes. And that, like, if exactly. you, you're in JSOC or something like that, and they're watching you and seeing what you do and cultivating people, and if they like what you're doing, um, it's possible that you get absorbed into some sort of compartmentalized program. You're exactly right. And there are guys uh, who maybe were an operator at one point, 
and now they're working for some program, and one day they could have credentials as a FBI agent, the next day they could have credentials as this a border control guy. Yeah, this is right. Yep. It's called official cover. Yeah. And that it's not so that they can go around and make arrests. It's just so that they can get to where they need to be to gather intelligence. Exactly. And that that's in this book. Like Eric Steele has official cover for Europe and different geographic areas of the globe. Like he has an alias and he has a business. Or like you can be like a German military officer. Yep. That's all that with, is all in this that's all in this book, you know, because I feel like people that pick up these books like expect a certain amount of like yeah. knowledge about the military and tradecraft and stuff like that. But you're right. I, I mean we had some guy in Afghanistan, again, it was just a young conventional infantry guy. I mean, he was a full colonel. His name is Colonel Biddle. I mean, I think. And he just came on patrol with us one day, and he was his own guy. And we're doing patrols in the middle of the night. And he's like, I got to step out. And I'm like, what? Like, where are you going? He just leaves the wire. Like, we're out, out of the wire, leaves our patrol base by himself, have no idea where he goes. Uh, the next day, uh, you know, he was gone. And the local elders from that village were like, like, hey, something happened last night. Like, so-and-so disappeared. And I'm just like. <laughs> colonel biddle it was i mean but this is just like a, a, a full bird colonel just a, a singleton operator doing his own thing he said he was a special forces guy i mean but like that stuff happens the way that comes together is it's like an offline conversation that happens between some spooky guy <laughs> and some company commander uh, oh you're going on an operation to this area hey i, I got this guy he's a dia contractor <laughs> right he's gonna go yeah. along with you and then, yeah, the dude, like, you're out on patrol, and the guy goes off, and he's like, oh, I got to go uh, have a meeting. I'll, I'll see you know. That happened. It's exactly, it's exactly how yeah. it went down. I mean, it's cool that forbid. you guys have experienced this, and then you get to write about it. Because, yeah. you know, I, we were talking earlier before we recorded about Brad Thor, and the thing about Brad Thor is, you know, he's a civilian, so he'll check with guys in the community. Hey, is this legit? Would this really happen? Would the dialogue really sound like this? For you guys... You've experienced it, and so now when you get to write about this type of thing, you lived it. I think that's cool. I, You know, Brad Thor is a huge inspiration to my writing style. I think he's an amazing storyteller, and you're, and you're absolutely right, though. Uh, you know, I think this this harkens to something that's really important to me, and that's veterans getting involved in, in the national discourse, whether it's in the media or with mainstream storytelling. Yeah. It's... It's so important because every time a veteran steps up and decides to talk about something, their story in the war, which it's just so important, uh, it brings us, it brings civilians a little bit closer to our world, and I think that just makes this country a better place, and ultimately it makes makes the country a better place for veterans to live. And so for me, you know, I mean, most of what I've done since I've been out and Outlaw Platoon gave me an amazing platform to help veterans, and I've got a national nonprofit called the American Warrior Initiative. So much of what we do is give service dogs to veterans because they just they That's just awesome. they help they help vets a lot, man. Yeah. The, the wait list is like. 10 years and some of these dogs cost $25,000 Well, we cut through all that wow. fund the dogs and get vets off of wait lists. And so that's what I've done. But I also started realizing having watched some of these movies that we have and TV shows coming out, like veterans, people that have been there and done that need to start writing more mainstream stories because I grew up watching like Back to the Future and Indiana Jones, and yeah. I like love, dude. Back to the Future is one of my favorite movies. I'm like, I love Marty McFly. I love me some Indiana Jones. Hello, but, McFly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but here's the deal: Who is this generation's Marty McFly or Indiana Jones? We keep rebooting the same things oh, yeah. that have worked, right? And so, it's our job. I see it as our personal mission to come up with mainstream characters that our young people can aspire to be like. Like I wanted to be Indiana Jones. Yeah, you know, I want to punch Nazis too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who doesn't want? To, who doesn't want to punch Nazis, man? Exactly. So, 
I'm not saying Eric Steele is going to be that guy, but I hope he is. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so that that's that's the motivation, right? That's the goal. Uh, you know, I'm in the midst of uh, finishing the manuscript for my own memoir, and that's, as what, I was, that's what you were saying. Yeah, you guys have gone the opposite direction. Yeah, you did the I, I nonfiction first. You well, because I didn't want to write my my own story, and you know what, kind of like. Um, when I, I started writing it and I sat down in the approach to it, you know, what really inspired me was um, interviewing on this podcast, uh, Jocko Willink Dude, he's and, amazing. and Chris Peranto. Yeah, that guy's amazing. Jocko and, and Chris are both awesome. And both of those guys, like, they drop, like, the honesty card, like, bam, like, right yeah. on the table. And, like, after seeing that, I was like, you know, if I'm going to do this, I have, I feel like I have an obligation to at least be as honest as these guys have been and been as forthcoming Absolutely. with it. And uh, so the book is pretty open kimono, and uh, that's great. I think it's going to upset some people. That's okay. Of that, you know what? Look, Colonel Hack- Colonel Hackworth, man, like he was prolific in the wake of Vietnam, but his yeah. voice was unbelievably important, and in many ways shaped the way that our military has grown and operated since. So you have look. I can't stand reading World War II accounts from generals that feel like war is sterile, like pieces yeah. on a chessboard. Yeah. That is not what it's like, and so. When I worked on writing Outlaw Batoon, it had to be a warts and all story because if you don't write a warts and all story, and again, filled with my mistakes as a young leader, looking back in hindsight, right? You, you don't have the benefit of hindsight when you're living it. But now, now I do. If it's not a warts and all story, you're doing the American people a disservice. And everybody that dons that uniform in generations that, that follow you know, are walking into a military that's going to be less capable because you didn't open your mouth and talk about things. And, uh, yeah, and I, I think that young kid who's like 17, 18, wants to join the military, and he's reading your book or one day my book, like they need to know about this stuff. They do. So they can avoid – I mean, I, I feel the same way. I hope that they can read about the mistakes I made and avoid some of that. Absolutely. Look, it's so important. And, and like, you know, th- we're in a really tough time, right? It's a really tough time for veterans, and that's because, like I've, I've said a couple times, veterans are real far away from civilians in this country, you know. Um, but – Part and, and like it happened because a very small percentage of people serve. Veterans tend to not talk about their experience. Civilians, while appreciative, don't want to ask because they don't want to dredge up something that's potentially like hurtful or something dredge up painful memories. So, as the percentage of veterans that have served has gone down and the, the gap has gotten wider because there's no dialogue going on, the, the way that you you fill that gap is by writing and telling your story. And so civilians read it, and then not only do they help you bear that burden, I mean, you think about it, you take the story out of yourself and you put it on a page. It's no longer in you. People read it, and they help you bear the burden, and then they ask you questions about it, and it facilitates dialogue, and it brings people closer to veterans, and it helps heal the rift that is in this country. And well so, said, man. Yeah. And so it's, that's why it's important for guys like you, man, like door kickers to tell yeah. your story. And so I'm, I'm there with you. It's an important mission. It's also important historically because, I mean, historians are going to be able to pick up um, outlaw platoon and examine that. And they're going to, then they're going to, this is decades from now, they're going to be able to go look at declassified documents, declassified predator feed Absolutely. footage, and they're going to be able to put it all together um, in, in a way that hasn't been done in wars in the past. So they'll have the first person account. They'll have the documents. They'll have the video. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it's, it's, it's an important way to recount the war. It's this is our longest war, and it, and it's and because of that, it's important for vets to get out there and tell their story, whether it's nonfiction or fiction. By the way, I got to give some major props to William Morrow, Harper Collins, the publisher. J- Jack knows this. This is just funny. So when the book was sent to us, 
they sent us the book, which is out today. Yes. Man of War. Pick it up. Eric Steele awesome. novel, the first book. But they also sent us this, which was this dossier. Uh, and I remember you, Jack saw this, and you were like, dude, I need I something like this. Like this. Yes. Yeah, they look, so. look back at that. She is the genius. Danielle Bartlett is a publicist extraordinaire. So if Jack's memoir has something like this, he... Copied it from you. Yeah, I'll be the no, first you got to it. Say. It's so important. <laughs> I looked at it like, what the? <laughs> I remember you just really brilliant. dug that. It's, yeah. it's smart because you guys get how many books? It's like you need something that like sets it apart. And you you flip through it and you get it like the a little cliff notes for yes, yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's it's that's all her and nothing to do with me. Very cool. That yeah, no, I know. Right dude. when you saw it, it caught your eye because it is true. We get sent dozens of books. And this stands out as opposed to one little piece of paper that says yeah. like, you know, and then on top of that, you have the quote from Lee Child on the front of the book. And that speaks volumes. I mean, for whatever reason that he gave me, a he sells a book every 15 seconds. And so <laughs> I was, I'm not joking. That's true. Like he's, he's ridiculous. He's prolific. He's been writing since the mid nineties. I was reading him when I was still in junior high. He is this, the king of this genre. And like to get a blurb from him has been like just amazing that must have been so cool he's amazing he's just an amazing (laughs) guy yeah and i got to sign books next to him at thriller fest this year nice yeah that's pretty awesome right i mean it's a dream i don't know if this book's gonna do well i hope it does but i got to sign books next to lee child so that was cool (laughs) i definitely think it will because i think that people are excited to read something completely different from you which is what this is totally different style of book and the first book did tremendously so yeah check out man of war out today um, you know, this is going up on Friday, but out this week, official com, which I was looking at the website, also has a link to the charity, which you were speaking about yes. for people who want to donate. Um, at Sean Parnell USA on Twitter, at official Sean Parnell on Instagram. Um, I do want to mention what we have going on at uh, Hurricane Media, of course, before we wrap this up. So be sure to check out Crate Club. We have an exclusive collaboration watch on the horizon that we did with NFW Watches. Uh, one of the next big items coming soon in the premium crate. We have different tiers of membership, as many of you know, depending on how prepared you want to be. Gift options are available as well. Scott Whitner from the Loadout Room and the guys are currently working on bringing you 100% custom products in 2019. Everything from sunglass cases to EDC bags and other manly products. It's a club for men, by men. You can check that all out at crateclub.us. Once again, that's Club. Dot us for you dog owners check this out you're going to love this we've just partnered with kuna they have a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog every month of healthy treats and training aids it's custom built for your dog's size and age as well the products are u.s sourced all natural and they not only promote a healthy diet but also promote being active with your dog so no matter what size dog you have this is just what you're looking for you can see all of that at kuna.dog that's kuna.dog. It's efficient for you. Your dog will appreciate it as well, of course. And that's spelled C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. Also, as a reminder for those listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to the Spec Ops channel. That's our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops Channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops Channel. That's at specopschannel.com. 
and take advantage of a limited time offer of 50% off your membership. That's only $4.99 a month. Appreciate you coming in, man. I know it's, it's a honor. super busy day for you today. You did Fox and Friends this morning. Yeah, yeah. It's cool, though, man. Like, I've been wanting to do this podcast for a long time. I've, I've known Brandon since Software was in its infancy, so it's amazing to see this grow. And, you know, it's kind of, I'm kind of geeking out actually getting to, to <laughs> meet, meet Jack and do this podcast and stuff. It's kind of cool. So thank you for having me. No, really appreciate it. And as I was saying, like, it's funny. You guys had never, like, overlapped in service, but, you know, it's cool your first time meeting each other yeah. because you're yeah, a, for sure. I was at you're approximately the same age. All of us are in our thirties, so I figured at some point you may have met each other, but I guess not. No, I don't think so. Yeah, well, this has been a cool one, man, and I really think people are going to appreciate the book. Um, you know, as I was saying to you uh, when you came in here, there definitely is just an abundance of veteran books on the market right now. But I think that this has something that sets itself apart from everything else out there. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I hope I hope people I hope it resonates with people for sure. Yeah. I mean, when somebody like you jumps in there and tries to or does write a book like this, I think you just bring something different to the table. It's just a gritty nature of it. You know, I got I was watching this movie with uh, with my daughter last night, actually. And these people were like running through the woods and everything like that. And they're like, women are wearing like perfect makeup and they all look like <laughs> totally done up. I was like, anybody who's actually done something like this would know you're going to be covered in sweat and you're going to be dirty. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Even though I have worn makeup in the field. I'm not, gonna, no, I'm not joking. That's, cool. that's a little that's rouge. A I couldn't cheese. even get through that <laughs> sentence without. without laughing, so. Well, it's official Sean Parnell dot com at Sean Parnell USA on Twitter at official Sean Parnell on Instagram. It's been great, man. Thanks Thank for you. taking the trip in. We, we really appreciate You're it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.